Hi, welcome to What Happens Next, Week 7. The weather is beautiful in Chicago today, which is a great change of pace. I hear the weather is also fabulous on the East Coast, so an extra special thank you for tuning in. We have a fabulous group of speakers this week covering a wide range of topics, including medicine, infectious disease, pandemics, and telemedicine. We're going to cover a lot of ground today with topics of sociology, municipal finance, and sports. We also will discuss the future of universities with a special guest, Chris Paxson, who is president of Brown University. The Chatham House rules apply for the call. We do this so we can learn as much as possible without putting the speaker at risk. The format of the call will be the same as the previous six weeks. Each speaker will be given only six minutes to talk. At the five-minute point, I may throw in a question or two, and then we're off to the next speaker. I find the format to be both fun and incredibly informative. After each of the speakers has spoken, there will be a general question-and-answer period where the speakers then will have a chance to have an open discussion. This call is being recorded. Our first speaker is Andy Slavitt. Andy helps implement the Affordable Care Act for the Obama administration. Andy, why don't you start us off? Thanks. I think we all know that the conditions under which we want to move forward from our current posture to the next phase uh, involves three principal things. Um, declining caseload to a manageable number, testing, and contact tracing. And I, am, I know you're all familiar with each of those things, but it will be useful to give you kind of an overview. But first, I'll tell you that the status of the country right now, ex-New York, if you take New York out of the rest of the country, um, is we're seeing 17% week-over-week case growth, so we don't even have the first condition met. Uh, death rates in every city in the country are climbing uh, outside of New York, the top, uh, the nine of the top ten cities, and the top ten hotspots are in rural areas in, in the in-between states, like the one where I live. Um, but when we do get a handle on caseload, we're we're uh, we're going to need testing to be able to move us forward. And I'm going to focus on diagnostic testing, uh, which is, as I think all of you know, is something that we are now attempting to do at scale. Uh, it's not a process that was originally de- designed for scale. It was designed pretty bespoke uh, with all kinds of requirements and not interchangeable parts and labor intensive. And as a result, we have had to ramp pretty quickly to the point where we're now uh, at a point where we're uh, producing 150,000, 200,000 tests per day. Um, but because we started late, we end up, that ends up being inadequate uh, for the outbreak. You know, we need to get to a place, there are different estimates where we'll need about 3 million tests a day. We need them to be abundant. We need them to be accurate, uh, meaning uh, test sensitivity needs to be higher than it is today, which is currently in the high 70s or low 80s. And we, ideally, we need them to be quick so that people can go about their business uh, and enter and exit places uh, knowing their status. I'm not going to focus on the antibody test. I find that to be far less important, uh, also highly inaccurate and a bit quixotic given that um, outside of New York, the national immunity level is probably just a couple percent. Um, what, do we need to, what do we need to test for? Well, I think the first batch of tests needs to go to frontline workers, healthcare workers and essential workers who still aren't getting enough. Uh, nursing homes, which need adequate tests but do not have them. Uh, and then other, uh, other centers of, um, of the, of the um, pandemic, such as prisons, uh, meatpacking plants and places like that, but also, if we want to get back to normal life, you're going to want to have a test for the essential worker who lives with his elderly father so he knows if he can go home every day. You're going to want to have one for the college kid who comes home from school to see his parents. You're going to want one 
from the woman with a little cough that decides to go to work anyway. Um, so until we're at that place, uh, economic activity is going to stall. Uh, economic activity um, will, in the form of employers hiring, in the form of, in, of companies investing, in the form of consumer spending, um, will stall until we have, uh, we're at that point. The reason we need all of this is because uh, unlike the flu or the measles, this is a highly asymptomatic spread, and there's a long dormant period. So that makes it that makes testing highly important. The second piece that connects to testing is contact tracing, which essentially means, oh God, you just told me that I'm infectious, that I've been infectious for three days. Who did I come in contact with in the last three days? Can I notify them and can we notify the people that they came into contact with? And ideally, can we shorten that cycle? Um, Sixteen of us led by Scott Gottlieb from the Trump administration and myself, but also some other uh, bipartisan folks and leaders like Bill Frist, Mike Levitt, Larry Brilliant, uh, the wonderful Mike Osterholm, who is uh, maybe on this call, Tom Middlesby, uh, Vivek Murthy, and others uh, authored a proposal to Congress uh, that asked for three components, and I'll get to those components in a second, but first I want to say the purpose of contact uh, contact tracing. Uh, The aim is not to eliminate COVID-19 with testing and contact tracing. The aim is actually to contain it so that instead of what we're living through now, which is a basically a forest fire, um, we can contain it to little campfires. And every time a campfire breaks out, we can surround it and make sure that we find the people that are positive, allow them to voluntarily isolate and allow the, allow the, um, the virus to have no place else to go. That will make people feel safer again. The three components to, the plan we put forward to Congress for number one, uh, hiring of a large workforce, 180,000 people across the country, um, we estimate uh, is what it will take uh, to do this job. It's a highly manual process. At the end, I'll talk a little bit about the role of technology uh, in it. But technology is very likely not going to be the silver bullet here for reasons I'll explain. Secondly, uh, it's it's to allow uh, you to, to use hotels and motel space, vacant hotel and motel space, as um, a place where people can voluntarily uh, isolate. They can't do so safely at home for many people who live in one-bedroom apartments, multi-generational households, et cetera. And third is an income displacement uh, payment because these people are doing a civic duty. They're preventing us from uh, the rest of us from getting sick. So we, we propose a payment uh, that they would get on a daily basis while they were secluded, kind of like the civil service of a jury duty, um, uh, because particularly people who live paycheck to paycheck. Now, I originally started down this course and talked to Google and Apple, and we had some success in getting them to use their technology uh, to to allow contact tracing to happen and give this as, a, as an aid to people. Um, ultimately, uh, my perspective is that it's not the answer, uh, largely because the uh, the public's perspective on on this is that there's a people are comfortable in a slight majority, but there's a large minority of people that aren't comfortable, and the the companies and any apps that were built uh, will be required to be opt in, not opt out. And even if you had a very generous opt in rate of say 40 percent, which would be pretty unprecedented, if you you're going to have to have both the person who's infected and the person who's their contact both opt in. So you really have only 16% effectiveness. So in the end, the technology can be a tool, it can be helpful, it could be an aid to remind me who I've seen before, but it can't substitute for, for the labor. In a nutshell, 
this is a big investment, but it's an investment that allows us to get back to work. It, it allows us uh, to be able to uh, function in a much more closer to normal fashion until such time as there are uh, bigger solutions uh, around the corner, whether it's a vaccine or something else. I'll stop right there. Perfect. Uh, you have the time of it perfectly. Um, our next speaker is Mark Smolinski. Uh, Mark is president of Ending Pandemics. Go ahead, Mark. Good afternoon. Thank you, Larry, for the opportunity to share a few thoughts with your listeners and how we're applying innovations to finding, verifying, and containing outbreaks faster across the globe. This novel coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, is joining the rapidly growing list of microbes that jump from animals to humans known as zoonoses. Emerging from the complex interactions of humans and animals in ever-changing ecosystems, zoonoses demand our serious and sustained focus to find and respond to outbreaks faster and more effectively. COVID-19 is just the latest threat, but behind it were Ebola, MERS, H1N1, and SARS-1 almost 20 years ago. Just over 30 years ago, I was on a team that investigated the novel severe acute respiratory disease in the four corners of the United States that has 75% mortality early on with death impacting previously 20 to 30-year-olds as they opened up cabins and other recreation facilities over Memorial Day weekend in 1993, and they swept up the dried urine and feces from the deer mice that took refuge over the winter rainy season in these Building this infected dust, if you will, presented with flu-like symptoms, but led to death within 24 to 48 hours. And certainly, we did not have the innovations that we have today when dealing with hantavirus. But just as many of you on the phone have never heard of hantavirus, eventually COVID-19 will be another distant memory, and we'll lose the drive, ingenuity collective spirit of cooperation that's really making a difference on this pandemic, and we really cannot let that happen. But even under conditions of uncertainty and fear, policies and procedures not always based on the best possible science, yet are opportunities to better understand risks and to explore innovations if we take the time to be thoughtful and systematic. As we talk about non-pharmaceutical interventions like school and work closures, social distancing, cancellation of mass gatherings, sporting events, wearing masks, we could do it in a systematic way to not only optimize, but also to document the intervention and collect the necessary data to apply proven methods to the next outbreak. When it comes to an outbreak of infectious disease like this novel coronavirus or any outbreak from an unknown pathogen, speed is of the essence. Speed of detection, speed of reporting, and speed of response are all crucial so the global community can be as prepared as possible to address the threat and limit or prevent spread. Any delay in detecting a novel threat translates into greater spread, illness, social and work disruption, and additional life loss. We have the opportunity to apply more sophisticated approaches to the fundamental needs of disease detection or surveillance. In some countries, farmers and workers in live animal markets who have the highest contact with potential new pathogens are connected to innovative community-led surveillance systems where they report illness in humans, family members, and to report a sick or dead animal. In Cambodia is one example, 
a free national hotline that was built several years ago in partnership with a local tech company that we support allows everyone in the country to call in and report any threat in their village or city and receive current information on what is circulating in the community. The system is free to all, regardless of your cell phone provider or device. Through a collaboration of all, all four major telecoms in Cambodia, providing the support necessary to make this system free to all. It receives 400 phone calls per day, of which 20 to 30 need some sort of public health intervention. Fast forward to COVID-19 pandemic, the hotline is now receiving 15,000 to 20,000 calls per day, and the Ministry of Health has hired 25 full-time operators working 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The government uses the hotline to communicate all things COVID to the public, and 90% of the cases under surveillance were first identified through the hotline. What makes the system even more impressive is that the Ministry of Health uses the same system to receive real-time text summary statistics from all of its health centers on a daily basis. So even in the United States, we've been doing this kind of innovation and tracking a seasonal threat with influenza for flu near you. And when COVID-19 appeared, flu near you users were asked to continue tracking their symptoms because they were already in there related to COVID and to encourage their family and friends to join. And we launched a sister tool, COVID near you, um, for those who want to engage in participatory surveillance for the first time during this threat. I know someone is gonna be speaking about sports and we were contacted in 2014 by the Ministry of Health in Brazil when they had seen flu near you operating for a few years to see if we were interested in doing it for a mass gathering. And so Brazil was the first country to implement participatory surveillance during the World Cup in 2014 and during the Olympic and Paralympic Rio Games in 2016. So finally, other innovations in self-reporting, social media, machine learning, and artificial intelligence are providing opportunities to find outbreaks faster so that we can stop a threat anywhere from becoming a threat everywhere. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Mark. Uh, our next speaker is Chris Paxson. She is the president of Brown University. Take it away, Chris. Thank you very much, and I'm glad to be here today. So I'm going to talk about opening up universities during a pandemic, and I just wanted to start by just reminding people that although they usually think about this as just bringing students back to classrooms, in truth, major research universities like Brown are very much like small cities. We have retail and dining and research labs and administrative offices and libraries and machine shops and a police force and public spaces. So, you know, we're facing the same challenges for, you, for reopening that nearly every other business and, and city has. But it's clear that undergraduate residential education poses special challenges during a pandemic, and that's why I wrote the op-ed that I did, and I'll talk a little bit about that today. So the first couple questions I was asked to address was whether I think some universities will choose to be online and others open for business in the fall, and does it make a difference where universities are? And, you know, the first point I want to make is that if the pandemic resurges over the summer as states start to relax social distancing, we will all be online. There won't be any option. For example, in Rhode Island right now, groups of more than five people can't gather together, and people who come in from out of state are supposed to quarantine for two weeks. 
And if conditions like this are in place in August, we simply can't bring students back to campus. But, you know, if the gradual reopening is going reasonably well throughout the summer, I think we will see some colleges and universities bring students back, although with modifications in place to protect faculty and staff as well as students. And it, it is true that where, where institutions are located will be an important factor. I have spoken to many university presidents in the past several weeks. There's a clear correlation between optimism about reopening and location. So schools in less dense locations will have an easier time to make the safety modifications that will be needed. Uh, there's one exception, though. Some very, very small colleges that are far away from medical centers and lack testing capacity, I think they may have a hard time bringing everybody back. Uh, another point that I think is important here is that I know of no university that isn't developing improved online courses, even if they think that they may be able to bring students back. We know that many international students will be unable to come back to campus due to travel or visa restrictions, and we have students who have health issues that are going to prevent them from returning. So these students are going to have to learn online unless they take time away from school. And then finally, even if we are open, large lecture courses will have to be flipped so that people are watching the lecture online and then breaking into small discussion sections. So the online mode of instruction will be used more than it has in the past, even for those places that open. So how do we protect faculty, staff, and community members who are vulnerable? I mean, the fact is young people are not at high risk from COVID-19. While there are some deaths, they're relatively few. So you know, what we're really doing is thinking about how we protect everybody else. So we're developing plans for social distancing in classrooms, wearing of masks, Students won't be seated right next to each other. Faculty members will be at least 12 feet from students. And, and I think the other thing that's really important is that faculty who don't want to teach in person, we can't force them to do that. And staff who can work remotely will be encouraged to do that as long as necessary. So you know, the kinds of social distancing provisions that are being developed for restaurants and hotels would apply to dining service workers and custodians who are back at Brown. Now, the other fact that, may, that is going to be true is that students are going to have a more restrictive range of options for community engagement. It's hard to see, you know, are students volunteering in nursing homes or health clinics uh, without the really great testing in place that I think we're going to need. Uh, how do we control student social life? I get that question a lot. Uh, and, you know, my, my hope, and maybe I'm a little bit naive, is that Students are going to respond to a really good public health education campaign. I, I think this can't be forced on students. They have to understand that if they don't follow whatever social distancing guidelines are in effect, they risk being the cause of the university having to go back to entirely remote operations. And from what I'm hear, hearing from students, they don't want that to happen. So I'll stop there. Okay, great. Maybe a couple of quick questions. Where are kids are going to live? Are freshmen going to live in? In, in doubles or triples or are they gonna yeah no no the plan I mean we're developing a plan which is sort of the medium case scenario where uh, a lot of social distancing is still needed and the idea is to have more semesters than we normally do and to make sure every student has a single room and lower bathroom density as well are so you no I don't I don't hotel? think we can put students in doubles yep and we're looking into renting other space and you know, hotels, apartments, things like that, where we can really spread them out. And let's imagine that the, the state says that you can be open for business. Is that sufficient for you to go ahead, or are you going to be more risk averse than the states? I think, 
Well, I mean, our state is being very aggressive, which I think is good. Um, you know, they're they're developing very good plans, and we're working closely with them. Uh, you know, if, if we don't feel that the safety bar set by the state is high enough, then we'll set a higher bar, clearly. Uh, but I don't think, given how collaboratively we're working with the state, that that's likely to happen. Okay. Chris, we'll come back to you in Q&A later. Our next speaker is Bob Zemsky. Bob is professor of education at the University of Pennsylvania. Bob, go ahead. Uh, I think my contribution to this discussion begins with the observation that life didn't either end or begin with the pandemic. And in my case, that's particularly true because in February, with two colleagues, I published a major study which sort of gave the calculus as to which institutions were likely to close. And what that focused on, because the pandemic was just minor noise at that point in the, in the press, but what it focused on was there were market flows that we really knew and that those market flows told us who was at risk and who wasn't. And the first thing to note about the market, before you even talk about the pandemic, is the market for higher education was consolidating. The big places were getting bigger, the richer were getting richer, the smaller were getting more lean, and the under-enrolled were in real trouble. So that there was a flow, a highly predictable flow and then you move into the pandemic and you say, well, we don't know for sure, but why don't we, as an estimate, double what we said before? So where we had said in February that about 10% of the smaller colleges were really at risk, we're ready to say 20%. Now, you need to understand when you make those statements that you're talking about a number of institutions, not number of institutions. So... 10% of small colleges actually enroll less than 2% of the uh, total enrollment in the United States. It is in the big universities that most students go. And the irony is going to be that those big universities, largely public, are going to have more pain in the beginning and less pain at the end. And the private institutions, because they have better control of themselves, are going to move into the crisis more calmly, but they are in bigger trouble because they don't have the deep pockets that the publics have. And I know anybody running a public university is going to say, what deep pocket? But compared to private universities, they really do have deep pockets. Uh, then there is the question of what happens when. Now, I spend a good deal of my life talking to college presidents. I actually just have a standard Sunday afternoon phone call with five of them, which I just got off of before now. And they say remarkably the same thing. Yes, we're going to open. I do not know of a college president who says out loud, we're not going to open. And the second thing they say is, but you have to remember, it's not my decision. What is particularly strange in the world of higher education right now is that we have ceded enormous authority outside of our institutions. We talk regularly about, we will be open if the governor lets us. I don't ever remember, and I've been at this for 50 years, ever saying, we will be open only if the governor allows us. That's the kind of conversation that's taking place. So that you really look inside 
particularly institutions at risk, but you're dealing with this high levels of uncertainty. They've not been there before. They don't have the bellwethers to use and the like. So I always have a kind of small game that I play with them. I ask them, are you going to have your faculty teach in masks? Well, I can't get away with that anymore because that's on a, but as recently as two weeks ago, most college presidents hadn't thought that through. Uh, and the answer, well, if the governor says we're going to wear a mask, of course we're going to wear a mask. But that changes the nature of the instruction. I'll leave this with one more observation. We keep talking about teaching online. I think the correct way to talk about things is to say we're going to teach remotely. Uh, this phone call is just an old-fashioned phone call, but I spend three hours a day on Zoom these days, and that changes. And Zoom and that kind of remoteness does allow a familiarity once you get used to the technology. So I think that what you could also see is a lot of really innovation, really around remote, not online, but remote teaching. But the larger problem is going to be where's the revenue going to come from? And if students really aren't enrolled on campus, then it's hard to see where all that revenue is going to come from. And let me stop there. Okay, great. Um, you know, you, you mentioned that you think that 2% of the students will have to move if 20% of the schools end up closing. Um, is that really a big deal? In, this, in the scheme of things for this industry? Think back to the 1970s when the issue of base closing came up. And actually, it took them 20 years to work out which bases, military bases could close. You have to think of colleges and universities in the economy as military bases. I, that, that doesn't sound right. I understand that. But they played that role so that it is terrible if a small town loses its college, even though the students are going to survive reasonably well, quite well, actually. Let me give you one other example of how this all twists around. One of the things we discovered when we did this study is that African-American students were more likely to attend an institution at enrollment risk than non-African-Americans. And there were lots of explanations for that. But what it says is that something like the pandemic is going to affect certain portions of the population. And we've already seen that it, the, the death rates and the like have a kind of ethnic cast to them. So, yes, it's a big deal, the 2%, because it will cause both disruption and consternation. And this is an industry, higher ed, that really thrives on fulsomeness, not consternation. Thanks, Bob. Um, our next speaker is Beth Cameron. She is vice president with the Nuclear Threat Initiative, and she specializes in global biological policy and programs. Go ahead, Beth. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me, everyone. I'm going to talk um, about three uh, things. First, how we can evaluate U.S. and, and global preparedness. Um, what are some of the major gaps? Second, I'm going to talk about how we can get prepared for emerging risks to include uh, risks um, like pandemics and naturally occurring disease threats like COVID-19, but also to include more globally catastrophic risks 
with even uh, even more consequences. And third, um, what will it take uh, to get prepared for the future? I'll offer some, some ideas about that. So first, um, I want to start off with sort of a global preparedness assessment. Um, our organization, working with Johns Hopkins and The Economist, uh, last fall published a global health security index where we looked at 195 countries across six categories, 140 questions, and we looked at preparedness um, to deal with high-consequence biological events, including epidemics and pandemics. And the overall score, the overall average score, was 40.2 out of 100. So that's a really low failing grade, and we actually were quite nervous about coming out with something quite that that low. I think looking at how the world is dealing with COVID-19, uh, many of us, are, unfortunately, are looking back at that number and seeing that it, it was actually close to the truth. The United States actually did fairly well in that index relative to others, but we still got a B minus at 83% with lots of areas for improvement, including our overall healthcare system, including our public confidence in government, including some of the metrics that evaluate whether capacity um, is actually being utilized and exercised. Um, and I think those, those are some of the areas that we can see looking at our response where we have trouble. But also importantly, just recognizing that this index is paper capability and that you have to exercise the, the capability that you have. And obviously, we had some challenges there. One of the areas where there a lot of weaknesses in our index was the ability um, for countries to be prepared for uh, a biological event that might start out as a deliberate um, or an accidental release. And notwithstanding the conspiracy theories and some of the the um, concerns that have been levied against China, um, this is um, a large area of concern uh, as we look forward into emerging biological risks. And I do spend a lot of time normally uh, focused on this area. So I'll just talk briefly about what some of those, um, what some of the challenges that we see uh, as we see it. Um, first, low capability um, to protect laboratory samples around the world from faster sabotage. The score in our index for that um, was that 81% of countries got a low score. The ability to protect people from pathogens, which is biosafety, 66% um, of countries got a low score. And then the ability of countries to oversee research that might be dual use or might um, potentially create um, or enhance transmissibility or virulence of a, of a pathogen that could be a potential, uh, that could cause a potential pandemic. And 99% of countries got a low score um, there. Um, so we have a lot of work to do in dealing not only with um, emerging naturally occurring pandemics like this one, but also emerging risks of the future. In particular, when we look at our international fabric uh, for dealing with epidemic threats, we, we largely look at the World Health Organization, which we obviously need to fund and strengthen, and I feel quite strongly about that. Uh, but we also have a fabric for dealing with deliberate biological events um, in the UN Office of Disarmament, the Biological Weapons Convention. And then there's a crack between those two organizations where there isn't really any international fabric that deals with um, biotechnology risks, the ability to make, uh, edit, um, and change pathogens to make them more, uh, more transmissible or virulent. There isn't really an organization focused on biosecurity, so preventing bioterrorism. Um, and there isn't really an organization focused on, on biosafety in the international community. It's definitely a role that WHO plays, and it's a role that the UN Office of Disarmament plays. But it's not really anybody's first priority. And so um, that's an area that I think we definitely need to strengthen for the future as we look towards emerging risks um, that could be even more catastrophic than what we're seeing now. So what will it take to get prepared for the future? Um, first, um, all of those gaps that I talked about at the beginning, um, an average score of 40.2, 
we now know where the gaps are, not just from our index, but the World Health Organization has conducted over 100 external evaluations of countries' preparedness for pandemics like this one and found um, similarly low scores. But there isn't really any incentive mechanism for countries to use their own financing or to really maximally leverage development bank and donor funding. And so um, really think that there should be a Global Health Security Challenge Fund that would, um, would incentivize countries, for example, to use development loans uh, for preparedness. Second, uh, biosurveillance, our architecture um, for disease detection um, is, is really um, dated. Uh, you heard from Mark Smolinski earlier, he wrote the book on this, uh, but I think that we need an epidemic forecasting capability in the United States. And we also need a much more um, a much more astute global capability that doesn't just rely on the reports that we're getting uh, directly from countries. And so some of the work that he spoke about, I think, just needs to be amplified, bolstered, and and really invested in. Third, I think it's quite obvious um, that we need a supply chain um, uh, reboot um, for personal protective equipment, for tests, for reagents and supplies, for all of the things that we're running out of here and that everyone is running out of, including. Um, recently, Africa CDC talking about not being able to access um, tests. So Andy uh, mentioned how what a tough time we're having here, and it's even harder uh, for our, for our fellow um, uh, colleagues who are sitting on the African continent without reagents. So we really need a mechanism for making them, and also being able to pivot to make them in a crisis more quickly than we've been able to now. And then finally, I think accountability and leadership. Within the UN system, there isn't one designated facilita facilitator or coordinator for biological events, um, and I think that's a problem. I think we can't only rely on the WHO or the Office of Disarmament. We need to have somebody whose full-time job it is to exercise against pandemic risk, so I think that person should be in the Office of the Secretary General. Similarly, um, in the United States, we need someone at the White House. We also need much better exercise coordination between our Departments of Health and Human Services, our emergency management leads at FEMA and at USAID, as well as our Department of Defense. Um, and so finally, I'll just uh, leave you with, um, with this, which is um, I hope that when we do uh, the next pandemic preparedness index over the next couple of years that we start to see increasing scores and, and ideally um, one silver lining, if there is a silver lining out of COVID-19, will be that we focus on some of these neglected areas. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Um, our next speaker is Dr. Lau Berkowitz. Um, he is a specialist in telemedicine. Uh, I first met Lyle in Hebrew school uh, way back in the day. So Lyle, go right ahead. Thanks, Larry. Um, so give you a little background. I'm an internal medicine physician. Uh, I was at uh, Northwestern for many years and uh, worked on their telehealth efforts, but spent the past two years as uh, president of one of the nation's leading telehealth companies, retired from there in January. Uh, so it's a hot question right now. Um, what has telemedicine been doing? Why has it been important? Uh, and what the future holds? So I'm going to uh, to summarize those in a couple of ways. First, uh, it's been incredibly important to help manage patients while minimizing exposure to healthcare workers. Um, in mid-March, uh, we shut down the country, uh, and uh, healthcare medical clinics, of course, were essential services, stayed open, and yet um, a lot of people didn't go in. What happened um, is most health systems, most offices, pretty quickly, within a couple of days, basically shut down or minimized their face-to-face -face visits uh, and even now, most outpatient doctors are doing 60 to 100% of their visits fully online, phone or video um, or secure messaging. Many doctors uh, and staff are working from home, um, recognizing because of electronic medical records, et cetera, they're able to do that and also 
because that minimizes their exposure. So really, the only patients coming into an office usually are those with chronic conditions that need some type of laboratory work or physical exam, uh, and usually who do not have any type of COVID symptoms, uh, and they're being seen by a skeleton crew. Uh, This is uh, true in primary care and specialty care, uh, but across the board, overall, um, healthcare is decreasing. Uh, the amount of visits that are being done are less, but the uh, majority of visits, over 50%, are certainly being done by telehealth right now. Uh, in the outpatient setting, that usually means two things. Um, first, of course, are patients with COVID concerns. Um, they're calling up and being told either stay at home, practice some home care, um, and sequester yourselves, or based on their symptoms and risk, whether or not they have to go to the ER. There's not a lot of treatment options that we have in the outpatient setting, uh, so a lot of this is triage. And what's also important is that we're quickly seeing a shift um, from doctors doing this type of care to automated chatbots or perhaps nurses who are um, have been uh, delegated the ability to do this to preserve doctor time. And this type of trend, this automation and delegation of routine care, I think will become an increasingly important part of our healthcare system. Second, of course, is we still have to take care of people with chronic issues, such as hypertension, diabetes. So patients are having visits with their doctors. Uh, they can review their vital signs done from you know, home machines. Uh, they can get their labs separately from coming in and seeing the, the, the doctor, and then adjust their medications, order tests if needed. Uh, but we still have to do the day-to-day care. Uh, we are not doing much primary care or preventive care, I should say, um, uh, as, as we're just sort of keeping the lights on. Meanwhile, in the hospital setting, of course, telehealth is becoming incredibly important, allows intensivists from afar to, to help manage ICU patients, allows specialists similarly to manage complex patients without having to be on site, and lets nurses and doctors, even in the hospital, do virtual rounds on patients without having to enter the room. Uh, so second, you know, what is going on that's helping um, improve this position? What's, what are insurance companies and government doing? I'll call it the three R's. Uh, we're seeing improved reimbursement, uh, improved regulatory nature, and then uh, what I'll call a regularity of basically patients and doctors getting used to doing online care. Insurance companies used to be very wary of paying for telehealth visits. They were worried it would be overused for every phone call. Um, but in March, as this um, shift happened, CMS created an emergency policy that uh, allowed uh, doctors to um, bill at parity for office visits for Medicare patients. Um, and most commercial payers quickly followed. Uh, this is easily the single most important thing for the industry as uh, to promote telehealth because uh, now that's being paid for, it's a lot easier to uh, expect doctors to be able to offer and do this. Um, at the same time, there's still clarity that needs to be made, whether it's true for just video visits, phone visits, how about asynchronous visits and messaging. These are still some things that need to be clarified um, and uh, but all signs indicate that this reimbursement change will continue after the uh, emergency is over. Similarly, federal government's made a number of um, regulatory changes, such as waiving HIPAA security measures, so doctors can use FaceTime, Skype, anything to communicate with patients. At the state level, various governors have signed temporary waivers, so doctors can practice across state lines as long as they have a valid state license somewhere. So the future of telemedicine this has clearly been a seminal moment. Um, we have crossed the chasm uh, of inertia. Doc, patients love it, of course. It saves them a lot of time. They're now quickly going to become used to it. Uh, the idea of going to a doctor's office may see, seem as archaic as going to a video store to rent a movie or bank to deposit a check. Um, with that said, 
I'll suggest telehealth itself is not enough. Uh, we can't simply have a goal of replacing a 15-minute office visit with a 15-minute video visit uh, or a phone visit. Rather, the goal will be how do we really take care of someone as quickly, effectively, as safely as possible. Uh, and we're going to see more automation uh, factor in, uh, automating the front and back end data collection uh, and follow-up. Uh, and at some point, uh, with FDA approval, we very well may see automation manage um, some amount of patient care, uh, urgent problems like sinus infections, chronic disease, uh, and only escalate into a doctor for outliers. Um, if we do that correctly, then we'll find we don't really have a shortage of physicians, simply a shortage of using them efficiently. And using all this technology will allow us to actually safely and efficiently um, uh, load balance across our system. Thanks. Great. Thank you, Lyle. Um, our next speaker is Doug Present. Doug is the chairman of a number of pharmaceutical firms uh, and medical, medical companies. Uh, he also teaches at the Wharton Business School. Doug, why don't you go ahead? So thanks, Larry. Um, the course that I do teach at Wharton focuses on understanding how we provide healthcare services in the U.S. And one of the most interesting things to me to see over the last couple of months was how our previous efforts to continually lower costs in our healthcare system led us in to be incredibly ill-prepared to handle the volume that came with the pandemic. Um, we first saw this with the lack of available hospital beds. If we were in my classroom now, I would be showing you all slides about how the number of hospital beds per thousand people uh, has been reduced by over 60% in the last couple of decades, and how the money being spent on hospital services versus non-hospital services is also dropping rapidly every year. We've continued to push to lower the length of stay for each procedure while carving out um, moving out care from hospitals into less expensive settings like ambulatory surgery centers, nursing homes, and home care. This trend was considered all well and good until perhaps it was no longer well and no longer good. Um, the analogy I've been using has been in the airline industry where in the race to become ever more efficient, the industry was successful in reducing their capacity and getting more and more people stuffed onto every plane, which is good until you have a two-foot snowstorm and passengers take four days to get home. We've just had the hospital version of the two-foot snowstorm, which has led to some extreme measures, such as canceling all the elective procedures to meet that challenge. I would suggest that the canceling of colonoscopies, biopsies, and other elective procedures may soon lead to a whole new set of problems, with a, a recent study showing that 30% of people reported not receiving needed medical care uh, over the last couple of months, either because the procedure was a canceled elective or because they were afraid of catching the virus. Um, I've heard governors and college presidents talking about the need to have excess hospital capacity to handle future flare-ups as one of the key criteria for allowing the city or the school to reopen. It's just not clear to me where these beds are going to come from once we allow elective procedures to take place again. So the virus has clearly exposed our lack of hospital capacity to handle significant surges, and we're going to need some better strategies um, if we do have future flare-ups. The next uh, area you all watched where we were ill-prepared was in our healthcare supply chain. Um, when the two-foot snowstorm hit, we just did not have enough PPE to handle the volume. Uh, I've spent a lot of my career in the healthcare supply chain, and I had people calling me to say, how is it even possible 
that the United States could not produce enough masks, gloves, and gowns? Um, the answer was, of course, we can do it. We just haven't. Um, we've become very good at sourcing the cheapest possible products, often from China. We've also gone to just-in-time inventory so that if we needed a, a thousand units of an item based on yesterday's usage, we had exactly a thousand units on hand to distribute. Again, all well and good until you unexpectedly need 5,000 units tomorrow. Um, when these people called, I did tell them the supply would soon rise to meet the demand, and you probably wouldn't be hearing about the PPE issue in four weeks. I do think that was mostly correct, um, and I really wasn't surprised to see how quickly the supply chain adjusted. Of course, during those four weeks, you had healthcare workers having to do their jobs without the right equipment. Um, and while I'm glad we're recognizing these folks now as heroes, um, the healthcare workers I know did not sign up to be heroes or risk their lives. Um, I think that having them have to take care of sick people without the right equipment was, to me, one of the, the worst parts of the recent crisis. Um, so efficiency in the supply chain is a good thing. Um, however, it's clear to me we're going to need to create a stockpile of these supplies to meet future surges in demand, as we can't expect individual companies in the supply chain or the providers themselves to house this stockpile. Um, the federal government's supposed stockpile of PPE was pretty insufficient and obsolete. Um, both Governors Murphy and Cuomo, um, and as recently as this morning, a seven-state coalition came together to say, we have to address this problem, and I do think it will be handled in the states uh, in the future. Um, the last area where we were pretty ill-prepared was in the area of commercial labs and testing. Um, two of the major players dominate the commercial lab space, um, and we've only recently started finding creative solutions like deputizing drugstores to draw specimens. Um, in his earlier talk, Andy discussed this, so I'm not going to repeat what he said, but again, not having this lab capacity um, continues to create some significant pain. I do expect that we will, again, uh, be able to meet this demand um, over the next couple of months, and I don't think you'll have people talking about the, 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 the lack of lab testing in the, the near future. Um, we are going to need these deputies, and we are going to need a thoughtful plan. I want to ask you all to think for a minute about the day we get a vaccine and how quickly you are all going to want to get one. Um, in addition to being able to make enough doses, think about the needles, vials, stoppers, other supply chain items, and all the resources that are going to be required to actually inject 330 million people, perhaps twice. Um, if we are truly preparing for that effort now, uh, I'm not aware of it. So I will conclude basically my point here today was that the pandemic exposed some real significant vulnerabilities in our healthcare system which we had never seen before due to this unprecedented increase in volume. Um, people not getting home for days after a snowstorm is certainly a nuisance. Uh, if our healthcare system isn't prepared for major surges in demand, the stakes are much higher. Uh, we are going to need to be much better prepared for future surges in volume, and we really need to start focusing now for when it's time to administer a vaccine. And I will stop there and turn it back to Larry. Perfect. Uh, thank you, Doug. Um, uh, this is a shout-out to Dan Murphy. Dan, I just sent you an email with the right phone number to call. Um, our next speaker is Casey Wasserman. Uh, Casey is CEO of Wasserman, a leading sports entertainment agency. Go ahead, Casey. Thanks, Larry. Um, so first I'll give an overview in my role as a chair of LA 2028 um, of the Olympic journey over the last few months. Uh, if you go back eight weeks to when... Um, the IOC still hadn't postponed uh, the Tokyo Olympics for this summer. 
uh, it was because the World Health Organization was telling them that um, the virus would be under control in the Northern Hemisphere and it was not a problem to proceed. And what really changed the paradigm for those Olympics was the competitive nature. Uh, you had athletes, a lot of them in America uh, and a lot of countries, who didn't have access to training and therefore weren't going to be in peak position to compete in the Summer Games. The other piece of it that really drove the conversation, which was not quite as public, uh, is given the entire medical world and every lab on earth is focused on dealing with this pandemic and appropriately so, it also meant that there would be almost no uh, uh, performance-enhancing drug testing. So you would have had an Olympics with uh, subpar performances and highly tainted probably by cheating. Uh, obviously, it became clear that the health wasn't going to be uh, containable so that you couldn't have the games, but I am confident that by next summer, uh, the games could happen, and, and I think the worst-case scenario is a scenario where you have Japanese-only fans so that the country can control its environment, and then you would quarantine the athletes before they came over, and by delaying it a year, you've sort of restarted the cycle for preparation uh, on an even playing field, so to speak. Uh, clearly, uh, as we plan for hosting the Olympics in Los Angeles in 2028, uh, we've added a new crisis to our uh, crisis planning document, which is uh, information, uh, clearly a pandemic in which no one could come to your events was not part of it. Um, um, and it's going to change the perspective and what you assume, and clearly there will be a new norm in terms of how you operate events with, with mass numbers of people. Um, but it has certainly sort of brought an awareness of things that we, we never would have thought of had this not happened. Uh, I don't think cities will be more reticent to bid on the Olympics. I do think uh, what a bid looks like and what an execution of Olympic Games looks like uh, will change dramatically. Uh, L.A. is fortunate. Uh, we have a, a basis of USC and UCLA, which is two global universities within 10 miles of each other in the city center that allow us to host a games without building a single new venue or an athlete village or a broadcast center. Uh, but most cities on earth don't have that infrastructure. And so what you're going to see as opposed to a singular city hosting the entirety of a games, you're going to see a singular city being the hub of hosting the games in a region. Uh, so the winter games that will be in Milan in 2026, the, 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 the sort of the venue sports will be in Milan, the skiing events will be in Cortina, and you're going to even have the sledding events in Innsbruck. So you're going to start to see games spread out a little more as opposed to being concentrated in a singular city just because it, they're going to become, frankly, financially and operationally untenable for any city on earth uh, to handle. Uh, in the traditional sports world, um, look, I think the sports that are going to thrive uh, are, are the big sports. I think anything that's on the margins is going to get crushed. Um, you're going to see a bunch of sports come back, I think, in the next 30 to 60 days. Uh, baseball, golf, uh, auto racing will be the first. Probably you're going to see some soccer in Europe. Uh, and to me, the real question is what happens um, with football in the fall and ultimately college football and college sports in the fall. Those are going to be big question marks. Uh, there's clearly a huge pent-up demand for sports, uh, as seen by the NFL draft ratings uh, and, and sort of anything, The Last Dance, which is the Michael Jordan documentary, People are, are, are looking for things to watch, and sports uh, has been part of the mass viewing experience in this country for a long time, and people miss it. Uh, and I think you're going to see enormous ratings for anything that's on TV that's live and real. Uh, we're going to have a couple clients play a, a Skins game. Uh, um, Matt Wolf and, and Ricky Fowler are going to play uh, Dustin Johnson and Rory McIlroy here on May 17th to really show the world what golf is going to look like without fans. Uh, and so you're going to start to see a lot more of that here very soon. Uh, and obviously a bunch of states have even opened up golf courses to public play already. You're going to see a new normal in live events, uh, just like uh, 
on September 12, 2001. You couldn't go to an arena in this country without going through a mag and scanned and couldn't take a big bag full of stuff. Uh, there will be a new version of that for health. I imagine we'll all get some version of temperature checked. Uh, all, all food workers will have masks and gloves. I imagine there'll be a lot more grab-and-goes in venues than there will be standing in line. Um, I don't think you will see fans in the stands in the short term. Uh, that's, I think, a 2021 thing. I don't think that will happen in 2020. I just don't think uh, um, people are going to have enough medical certainty to do that. I actually think people would go do that. Uh, if you look at the beaches in California and Orange County the past week, uh, there's clearly a large portion of the, of the country that thinks they're invincible and wants to and needs to get out and, and interact. Uh, but I do believe there's a big pent-up demand. Uh, and, and lastly, of your questions, you know, I think there's a short-term blip in the valuation of sports franchises. Uh, that valuation blip is, frankly, based on the economic recession or worse that's going to happen because of this. Um, but in the end, sports are truly unique uh, uh, and truly uh, uh, valuable assets, of which there aren't very many. And over the long term, it's one of the really valuable things. The other thing I'd want to point out real quick, is take the NFL, for example, uh, uh, 97% of avid NFL fans will never see a game in person. So sports really is a television event. Uh, now, creating an environment that's compelling without fans is a challenge, but sports is designed to be watched on TV, and so I think it will actually be a huge success when it comes back sooner than later. Thanks, Larry. That was great. Thank you. Um, our next speaker is Otto Tavori. He is an associate professor of sociology at NYU, and he recently wrote a book called Summoned about an Orthodox community in L.A. Yeah, thank you for having Yeah, Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Perfect. Yeah, great. Yeah, sure thank you for having me. Um, so I'm going to talk about two issues and challenges that are facing um, strict religious groups and denominations uh, with the COVID-19 pandemic. So let me start uh, with a couple of observations. And, and I study uh, Orthodox Jews, uh, religious Jews, kind of black hat religious Jews. Um, so I'll kind of have them as my anchoring point. But if you look at, at Orthodox Jews, um, you have a few phenomena that have risen up in the past few weeks. First, in Israel, but also in New York and New Jersey. Uh, Jews, um, male Jews over the age of 13 are supposed to have a minion, 10 men praying together. Um, this has been, of course, challenged by the pandemic. As a reaction, although many minions have been canceled, in a lot of very strict communities, you have what's called secret minions, both in Israel and in the United States, where people kind of text each other and come to a pre-said place in order to pray together and not usually not quite keep social distancing. Um, the other thing that you have partly as an effect of that, um, are big outbreaks in Orthodox communities, especially in Israel. Bnei Brak and, and the Orthodox neighborhood in Jerusalem have been very hard, hard hit by the pandemic. Um, you also see, um, of course, that's not only an Orthodox thing, but you also see Orthodox groups mostly not socially distancing, or, or at least parts of them not socially distancing in terms of events, funerals, as has been the case a few days ago in New York, but also in New Jersey, also in Israel. So what's going on here? Um, so I think there's a couple of things that um, religious groups, and I'm talking, again, I'm talking about Jews, but I think that goes for evangelicals in partly the same ways, and also for kind of strict Catholics, 
um, there's been uh, a kind of wrangling over the question of expertise over how we live for the past decades. The kind of question of whether expertise for how we live resides in science or in religion has been kind of subject of quite a lot of controversy. What we're seeing here then should not surprise us, because if you look at both the United States and in Israel, questions like the measles vaccinations have been kind of a flashpoint beforehand. The question of whether the medical establishment has the power to prescribe how we live and the kind of question of expertise has been going on for a longer time. However, I want to note a few things that are really, really interesting that are coming about. And I think until now what I've said is something that we would have expected. But we see in the Orthodox community that by and large, there's quite a lot of cooperation with medical establishment, both on the level of how people actually act when there's a crisis of that magnitude going on, but also in terms of religious law. So the pandemic hit just when the Jewish Seder, the Passover Seder, was supposed to have been and, and has been. But of course, you can't have large families come together, or at least you're not supposed to have large families come together. And although some large families have come together, there's been rabbinical prescriptions that you're allowed to use electricity in order to have Zoom meetings uh, for the Seder, which does not sound like a big deal, but for the Orthodox community, using electricity on a religious holiday actually is seen as a break of religious law. And many rabbis have allowed that. Not all of them, but many rabbis have allowed that. So I think what we're seeing is kind of a renegotiation of the question of who has the expertise and the way that religious expertise and medical expertise are moving towards some kind of alignment. And it'll be interesting to see what happens with that going forward. The other question I think that's really, really interesting to me at least, is a question of what kind of religion and the kind of relationship to God um, that we are seeing with the outbreak of the pandemic. And I think most of the religions that at least I study, um, the Orthodox Judaism, but also branches of Islam, uh, are based on practice and are based on um, communal practice. So people have to come together as part of the practice. The, the, the stress is not on the personal relationship to God, even though that, of course, exists and is important, uh, but on communal practice. You're seeing uh, both in Jewish quarters and in, in Catholic quarters a call to develop your private personal relationship to God. And I think this is an extremely interesting development that sounds a lot like Protestantism, in some sense, the kind of blueprint for this kind of relationship to God. I mean, in, in Catholicism, in Judaism, that has been, I mean, this kind of personal relationship has been the province of the mystics or the religious virtuoso. Now it's becoming, by necessity, what each of us should do. But that, of course, is actually the kind of uh, Protestant model of relating to divinity. So I think what we're seeing in both these cases as kind of religious adaptations to the situation. Now, the question of whether these religious adaptations are a blip uh, or that whether they will kind of deepen uh, processes that have been going on uh, in, in the shape of religious uh, practice and expertise um, is an open one. And I think probably if the pandemic will, be, uh, will pass relatively quickly, we will not see a long term change in religion. But if it does go on for a few years, I think some of these processes 
have been happening in other quarters and will kind of be etched deeper into these kind of strict religious denominations. Thank you. Oh, that was fantastic, Idol. Thank you so much. Um, our next speaker is David Skeel. Uh, David is a professor at Penn in the law school. Uh, he's also a member of the Financial Oversight and Management Board for Puerto Rico. Go ahead, David. Thanks, Larry. Uh, a columnist in Forbes last week said that he, quote, blamed Skeel for giving scholarly credibility to the idea of bankruptcy for states. Another reporter I think that's right. described <laughs> uh, I do get a certain amount of blame. Uh, another uh, credit, another reporter said something similar. He described me as an evangelist uh, for state bankruptcy. So I, I think that's why uh, Larry has me here today. Um, there are three things that uh, you should know by way of background if you haven't been following the state bankruptcy debate uh, closely since Mitch McConnell's remarks kind of re-triggered it. Um, and even if you have been following it, these, these three points are sometimes lost. Uh, the first one in particular, uh, the first point is that states currently cannot file for bankruptcy. Uh, the bankruptcy laws allow cities to file for bankruptcy under what's called Chapter, uh, chapter 9, municipal bankruptcy, if their state allows them to file, but states currently cannot file for bankruptcy. So there is no, no bankruptcy for states now. Second, any state bankruptcy system, if state bankruptcy were enacted by Congress, would have to be entirely voluntary. So the idea that Illinois, which is the poster child for possibly needing bankruptcy, the idea that Illinois could be thrown into bankruptcy uh, against its wishes, that would not be possible under a bankruptcy law. The, the bankruptcy law would have to be voluntary if Congress tried to pass an involuntary bankruptcy law, it would clearly violate state sovereignty. It would be a violation of the 10th Amendment of, of the uh, Constitution. So what we're talking about is an option for states to file for bankruptcy. Third, um, I should acknowledge as an advocate of state bankruptcy, there are constitutional questions about bankruptcy. It would be challenged. It would be challenged in particular under the contracts clause of the, of the Constitution, which says that states can't impair contracts and as a violation of state sovereignty. My view is that it would be constitutional, at least if it were framed properly, but I do have to acknowledge there would be constitutional questions. Now, the quickest way to make the case for state bankruptcy, in my view, is to show that the principal arguments against state bankruptcy, the arguments everybody says for why it's a, a horrendous idea, actually, when you look at them, demonstrate the virtues of state bankruptcy. So start with Democrats. Uh, Democrats uh, who criticize state bankruptcy criticize state bankruptcy typically because they believe that it will be used to wipe out pensions, it will be used to whack public employees, and therefore it will be terrible for these groups. Now, uh, it is sometimes pitched that way um, by folks who are advocating for it, but this is entirely a misconception um, in my view. And in fact, 
Bankruptcy actually would provide for a much more equitable distribution of the sacrifice. What happens if you don't have bankruptcy and if a state is in severe financial distress, what happens is the distress tends to get visited on one or two constituencies. And the, and the constituency that is hit hardest is beneficiaries of services in the state. That's what gets hit first. That's what's getting hit in Illinois. Bankruptcy would uh, provide for a much fairer distribution of the sacrifice. Everybody would have to sacrifice, but no one or two constituencies would be hurt worse than anybody else. And in fact, in the big bankruptcy cases so far, pensions have done fine. Um, in the Detroit bankruptcy, pensions were adjusted a little bit, but the, the hit was not terrible. Stockton, California bankruptcy, the pensions were not adjusted at all. Republican critics of state bankruptcy uh, typically argue that if you had state bankruptcy, it would just destroy the bond market. No one would ever buy state bonds again. Um, there's some problems with this argument. One problem is it assumes that the bond market can't tell the difference between fiscally responsible states and fiscally irresponsible um, states. And, and that's just not accurate. The, the market does a pretty good job of distinguishing between the two and punishing the fiscally less responsible states. To the extent there was an effect on bond prices, it would be because we'd be taking away the bond market's assumption there's going to be a bailout if a state um, gets into trouble. I think bailing out states is a terrible idea. So to the extent there's an effect there, it's not really a problematic effect. Finally, um, if bankruptcy was terrible for the market, we would expect that municipal bankruptcy would have destroyed the municipal bond markets. Um, but that's not the case at all. Cities can file for bankruptcy if their state states let them. This has not hurt the bond markets at all. Um, so bottom line, it seems to me nobody wants bankruptcy for a state, but the alternatives to bankruptcy are either a bailout or a complete collapse and potential default if the state is in deep distress. Both of those are worse than bankruptcy. Finally, um, uh, Larry mentioned I'm on the oversight board for Puerto Rico. Uh, Puerto Rico's restructuring case, which has been going on for three years at this point, um, is the closest thing we have to state bankruptcy. I've come away from it so far thinking that state bankruptcy would be a little messier than I once thought, but that it actually works pretty well and uh, is, uh, in the end, advisable. Thanks. Great, David. All right, well, this officially begins the question and answer period for the group. Um, I'll start my first question for David, just finished speaking. Um, David, are you surprised that this is the time to propose and maybe get some bankruptcy legislation? Did we have to have a crisis, uh, whether it came from um, COVID-19 or elsewhere, that would allow some kind of combination of cash to the states in exchange for bankruptcy, and, and why does there have to be a trade-off politically? Well, I think there does have to be a crisis, realistically. Um, you don't get state bankruptcy without a crisis. That's what we've seen historically with, uh, with cities that have been in deep financial distress. Um, why is it? Because, in my view, nobody wants to face 
um, to face up to the reality of what it would be like if there were a massive default. Um, there are, there's opposition from both sides of the aisle, and that opposition won't break down unless there's a crisis where people begin to realize there's no other choice. I would not have guessed that this would be the crisis. Uh, a month ago, I wasn't thinking, gosh, we're going to be debating state bankruptcy. Um, but because of Mitch McConnell's remark, which I, I, remarks, which I think were designed just to make the point that he thinks that the state should be given funds to, to plug the hole in their balance sheets from the coronavirus crisis, but not to bail them out. Um, that was his way of, of making that point, and, and lo and behold, uh, state bankruptcy did wind up on the agenda. Perfect. Um, next question for Ido Tavori. Uh, Ido, you, you talked about the religious Jews getting a little bit too close to each other in the Minion. Um, why do you suppose that given the health risks and that their awareness for it, um, why don't they just meet in groups of 10 um, with, six feet, with some material social distancing so they can get the best of both possible worlds? Yeah, I think that, uh, first, first of all, some of them are trying to do so. So uh, the, the, the minions that I've heard about and that I've spoken uh, about, some of them do try to do that. But a lot of these communities are actually rather poor. And the question of actually having space, they, they usually meet in small apartments or in, in, in buildings. Uh, the ability to actually have six feet distance is problematic. So that's just kind of just on, on a practical level. But on a theological level, uh, you will hear, especially in the beginning of the pandemic, now these there at least I hear fewer of these voices, uh, that uh, God will protect us from the pandemic. And of course, you hear that not only on the Jewish front, but also on the evangelical front. Um, so, so I think that's the other part of it, that doing job, God's work in some sense would protect people from the pandemic. You know, there's, there's that core belief that we have in, in a Judaic faith that um, if you put it at risk in a health or a bodily way, that that could be exception to religious law. Why isn't that kicking in as a basis? Well, it is kicking in. Partly that's what we're seeing with things like the Zoom. Um, uh, part of the justification of the Zoom Passover seders is because, especially with older people, not having their family around them would put them in some kind of actual physical distress and therefore it's uh, permissible to do things uh, that's uh, you know to, to, to use electricity um, but but again and that's kind of my first point which is that I think the question of the relationship of, of who has the expertise to tell us how to live and the kind of uh, fraught relationship between uh, especially the medical establishment and and some religious groups um, a, a lot of people simply don't believe um, that, that they have to listen to the medical establishment, but, but put their trust in God, even though you have all these uh, religious laws in place that would allow you to do exactly that. You know, when um, there was a breakout of uh, COVID-19 in Iran, and I think one of the reasons that it hit some of the leadership of the country was that there was a funeral for one of their senior leadership uh, officials who had passed away right. uh, and it quickly spread among themselves. Um, even though there was, I think it was well known that there was a risky prop proposition. And then today in Jerusalem, when a, a senior rabbi dies, we're getting to see the same sort of outpouring right. of response, maybe not so much with the senior leadership, but 
you know, I think I saw a picture of, it seemed like, you know, a very large public gathering in the streets of Jerusalem. Right. Um, right. What do you make of all that? Well, again, I mean, I think that's, that's another facet of the, of the same, of the same issue. Uh, the kind of lion is, there's two parts of it. First of all, the lionization of, of the community as a kind of, um, both a religious, um, aspect of life, but also the way that life has been going on, the kind of, a, a kind of moral, even beyond the religious, a kind of moral force of, of the community that people are loath to, to, to give up. But the second thing is again, the question of, can you, if you are doing something, if you risk yourself for, for the greater glory of God, how much at risk are you? And I think for some of these groups, uh, and this has been something that's been going on throughout, especially the history of the 20th century, the kind of suspicion of people telling them that they cannot do that. Um, and, and, you know, and of, of the scientific establishment in general is such that when you have kind of a flashpoint of this sort, again, this is a minority of kind of, of the, of the, of the religious groups, but, but that such a minority exists is not surprising. Thanks, uh, Casey, a follow-up for you. We talked a lot about amateur Olympic sports. You spoke about professional sports. Um, what are your thoughts on college ball, on high school sports, even little leagues, uh, particularly little leagues where there seems to be so um, little physical risk to the kids themselves? Uh, how do you feel about the power of sports, particularly for young people? Well, I, look, the power of sports is undeniable and never been more important and yet never been more challenged. I mean, you take Los Angeles right now and all the recs and parks facilities are turning into either homeless shelters or emergency medical facilities. And so the opportunity for kids to play is disappearing quickly. Um, and I'm really concerned about that because also, as you realize that cities and municipalities are going to have serious funding gaps things like sports programs are going to be the first things cut, uh, and it's a real challenge. Um, and I'm concerned about college sports. Uh, and college football is probably 80% of the economics of college sports. Uh, it's impossible that you're going to have a college football season this fall. I'm shocked that they haven't already tried to move the season to February just to get ahead of it. Um, but if you were to miss a whole college football season, uh, the, the ripple effect to universities, to athletic departments, to frankly, all of the Olympic sports or the non-basketball, non-football sports at universities would be staggering. There'd be a, a, a clearly a disproportionate effect on women's sports because uh, they benefit so much from the economics of football, and rightly so, uh, to create those opportunities. And so it's a real big tension, which is kids need to be playing. It's great for their psyche, for their mental being, mental well-being. Uh, and if schools aren't in session and and parks and rec facilities aren't open, it's a it's sort of a double whammy, and we've got to figure that out, and you're going to have to slowly find a way to get kids to be able to, to engage and interact. And, you know, this may be the day of reckoning for college sports. I mean, I think you could see a bunch of Division One schools just decide that it's not worth the, the risk and the money and the arms race that's happened to, uh, to compete. Well, moving on to uh, professional sports for a second. Look, there's a lot of money involved, and... Some party is going to have to take risk, and some party is going to have to take potential losses. To what extent um, is that mostly on the owner? How does it relate to the, the players? I have a feeling that um, as contracts come up, even for the following year, how will risk be spread between owners? 
So player. right now, right now, you know, uh, I would tell you the the thing that's odd is the networks like are still paying. <laughs> uh, they're still paying their rights fees to the leagues because uh, no league has declared a force majeure yet. Uh, and so, I think you you do see though, and and we represent lots of players in, in every sport. Players, owners, all recognize that there's the pie is going to be smaller, and everyone has to uh, take a reduction. NBA players have already agreed if there's a season. Uh, a finish of the regular season this year, uh, that they'll take a 25% pay reduction going forward, obviously not retroactive to the games they've already played. I think everybody understands that. What What isn't as clear, Larry, is what, the economics. I don't want to get in the weeds for this group of, of collective bargaining agreements going forward. You know, Next year's NBA salary cap is based on projected revenue. Well, uh-huh. how do you project the revenue? Is it down 30%? Well, if it's down 30%, the salary cap goes down 30%, and yet I would tell you every team today has guaranteed contracts for players on their rosters in excess of that down 30% scenario. So now every team, you could have a third of the league out of work with no team able to sign a player. So there's all sorts of economic implications. So this is not as simple as cutting salaries. The structures that are designed in all these leagues that have collective bargaining agreements never contemplated an environment where there was no revenue now some sports like baseball disproportionately harmed because the number of fans is so important versus a sport like football where you only have eight home games. And so it's, a, it's also another reason like a sport like tennis, I believe, will not play this year because 90% of their economics are from live attendance, not television. And uh, and you can't play tennis tournaments without live people if, you, if the economics won't support it. Hey, just to follow up on tennis, I mean, if Federer and Nadal announced they were going to have a match uh, without fans, it goes back to that same sort of live pent-up demand for watching people play. I mean, it's better. I mean, I'm not interested in auto car racing much, but I, I am interested in tennis. Um, why wouldn't that be a successful uh, approach? It, it would. Uh, the the one-off events for for almost any sport will be successful. Uh, a, a tournament with 128 players in it in. Miami or Indian Wells or the U.S. Open in New York uh, uh, in August and September is is a different scenario. So if if Nadal and Federer want to play, uh, I'm sure the rating would be massive and the audience would be global. Um, doing that in a in a tournament like setting is almost impossible. Okay, thank you. I now want to bring in Lyle and Doug for a second. I didn't realize when I set this thing up that you guys would uh, not agree. So I'll use this as a chance for a little bit of debate. Um, well, you, you heard what Doug had to say about not having enough hospital supply and that telemedicine may be taking us in the wrong direction. Do you want to uh, comment on that? And then, Doug, will you respond? Sure. Well, I, I think, yeah, I, I'm curious to understand that a little more because uh, yeah, telehealth is sort of taking care of the issues um, to relieve the burden, right, to load balance. Um, so that we don't have uh, as many people having to go in, so we don't have to uh, need as many supplies, so to speak. Uh, so I'm a little curious, where, Douglas, if you can explain that a little more, um, because it's you know from what I no, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure, Larry. Uh, I'm not sure, Larry got my position. I mean, I was chair of a company with one of the largest telehealth telehealth platforms for psychiatry in the country. Um, I'm a big believer in telehealth, Larry, and I think that. Um, in fact, you know, one of the good things to come from the pandemic here is that some regulatory burdens and some very interested parties that have kept telehealth from progressing 
um, as quickly as it should, um, are now getting knocked down, and there'll be no going back. So I'm actually a big believer that telehealth will be a, a major part of our healthcare system going forward. Um, so you know, I, I'm I'm not sure where we were on uh, on on different sides of that piece. Um, again, I just my my comment was sort of the the ill preparedness. Um, for the actual needs for hospitals and ICU beds um, and medical supplies that we just didn't have. Well, I will right. add one of the interesting things I, I found talking to as we as we have that uh, as they say, in innovation constraints often can help. Um, like I said, I know that we're seeing a lot of telehealth within the hospital, so you don't have to go in the room. Also, an interesting phenomenon of ingenuity. A friend of mine is the chief medical officer at a hospital system said that they, the nurses figured out how to bring the IV tubing out of the room so they could adjust the IVs without having to go into the room, therefore saving need for PPE exposure, et cetera. And by the way, it's been one of the major complaints of patients for years, which is all that beeping from all those devices. Oh, yeah. um, I think we'll see a lot of this interesting, uh, uh, ingenious little things that happen because of this, uh, uh, this constraint that we have. Okay. Um, my next question is for Beth. Beth, um, we spoke in the pregame a little bit about uh, how bioterrorism is different than a pe pandemic, or I should say a natural pandemic. Um, another thing that I think I've learned a little bit is the global nature of the spread. Um, do you feel like bioterrorism is more going to be done by a terrorist organization or by a nation state? Because any nation state that unleashes uh, a you know, a global pandemic, it'll come back and bite them just as badly as if it was on their own country initially. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So there's there's a relatively active debate about how much um, harm, uh, you know, a, a bioterrorist, uh, you know, a terrorist organization could cause using a biological agent. And then also a debate about whether um, a state would use um, biology as a weapon because an infectious disease specifically as a weapon because it could come back and harm them. And I think on the former, on, on bioterrorism, what I would say is that a, a lot of terrorist groups have, have different goals, and some of them have ap apocalyptic goals and, and aren't really particularly worried about wiping themselves out. Um, we've also seen that terrorist groups are opportunistic, and we don't know what kind of expertise they'd be able to recruit, um, you know, kind of infamously. Al-Qaeda um, advertised online for people with molecular biological experience. So I think we can't rule out a situation where a bioterrorist in the future might have access to um, smart people or might have um, more organized capabilities um, to, to create uh, pathogens to use DNA synthesis technology to make something that could, um, that could cause a pandemic. I think with respect to nation states, we have to look at what the motivations would be and what kind of, of weapons they might be, be interested in. Um, I do worry um, a lot about the scenario where a state might be um, thinking about uh, what it could use biology for and then, um, and then experiment in a way that was risky that could cause an accidental release. And I think right now um, is a time when speaking about those issues feeds into the conspiracy theories and the speculation about China, but nonetheless, um, it is an, an area of, of work um, in the international community that we need to strengthen, and we really do need a way to investigate the origin of a virus in a depoliticized way in the middle of a crisis, and we don't have one, and I think that's one of the reasons we're seeing the food fight between the United States and China about this right now. Maybe just to expand on that, um, we, um, we had Sarah Wecht on last week, and 
he felt that it was probably more likely coming from those wet markets in Wuhan. Um, but is there a way to know in real time, like what? First of all, can we? Is it disprovable, one way or the other? And if not, um, what? How will our military or our intelligence services or the president be able be able to evaluate that question? Is it space sponsored or is it is it natural phenomena? Yeah, it's an excellent question. I I think um, so. I'll I promise I'll answer it, but very quickly I'll just say that there's um there are a couple of existing ways to investigate the origin of a of a virus. One of them is the public health investigation, which WHO does and which has been done um, in the case of COVID-19, and it's focused on finding, you know, what is the what is the viral origin and scientific research then following to figure out which animals is coming from, if it's a zoonotic disease or where is patient zero. Um, then you also have a UN mechanism for if there's a state that thinks that a, a biological weapon has been deployed, you can actually call for the UN Secretary General's mechanism for the alleged use of biological chemical weapons to be deployed and actually have an investigation, um, you know, happen uh, after that. And in between, in that sort of murky phase where it doesn't look like um, like it was a weapon, uh, but it also uh, no one can figure out exactly where it came from, there's no sort of way to, to bring together the international scientific community officially to answer those questions in a way that is non-accusatory. And I actually think that we do need a mechanism like that, probably out of the UN um, and something that could be built um, when, we, when we're in a less sort of hot political environment. Is there a way to tell in real time? Um, once the sequence is published, um, it is, um, it, it is um, you can, I won't say easy because it's not easy, um, but in this case, you can look at it and see that it doesn't have any signatures of genetic engineering. It doesn't look like it was created um, from scratch um, it, using um, using other pieces of DNA to, to stitch it together. And the mutations that, that caused the spike protein to do what it does in COVID-19 weren't predictable. They weren't predicted in the literature to, to cause this kind of effect. And so um, researchers are therefore saying that it's unlikely that someone would have created them with this intent. Um, they wouldn't have been able to predict that this would have happened. For an accidental release, it's a little harder to rule it out uh, because it's hard to tell. But the researchers you've published in Nature have looked at the types of mutations you get from growing coronaviruses um, in the laboratory, and they don't think, or at least they've said, these do not seem consistent with those. But in real time, it's very difficult, and you really need a group of the best experts in the world to, to come together to talk about it. That's certainly happening, but it's not happening in, a, in an organized way, at least as far as I know. Thank you. Uh, Bob, question for you. Um, in your book, uh, College Stress Test, you highlight that there are uh, a certain number of, of students who pay f full tuition that really help uh, pay for a lot of the bills. Um, in years like this one where potentially uh, there may be a huge decline in the number of international students, a number of kids might take gap years, um, the, you call them medallion institutions, the highest institutions in the country may want to drop down into their wait list and grab a number of kids who normally wouldn't be able to attend these institutions. Um, and that will cause some sort of, uh, you know, a waterfall effect, namely that the schools will have to grab and grab down the chain of potential students, um, wrecking havoc on those schools which aren't as... Uh, with the same sort of high reputations. Do you think there's a potential for 
uh, dramatic effects on those other institutions as I'll call it the medallion schools grab uh, a greater group of students. You're right, but you're not right. And so let Good. me you and I share you you and I share ten connections. Uh, so you have to realize that the University of Pennsylvania gets forty eight thousand applicants for twenty three hundred places, and it will only send out thirty five hundred letters of admission. So the scenario you're talking about for Penn doesn't make any sense at all. That they're they're not going to dip down. They're not going. They've already distorted the market by having this sort of great sucking upward movement. So that that's when I talked about the flow of the market. That's the first piece. Huge upward shifts, uh, and not not unconnected to a long period of prosperity. So that the answer to your question is not that the institutions at the top are going to drop down. The answer is, is the full-pay student on which the Pens and the Harvards and the Stanfords depend going to become more of a rarity because we're really going into a triple-digit recession? A triple-digit recession is going to upset everything. But then the question becomes, is that going to upset the operation of the market more or less than the fact that we that it isn't business as usual in the classroom. I don't know anybody that has an answer to that. I think everybody wants to think about it. I was on the phone with a president today who told me he was and he was evaluating forty six separate scenarios. I mean this has become mind boggling about sort of trying to imagine what's going to happen. The other president on the line told them, sort of scolded me, said, well, why don't you just let it happen and see what happens? And I think that's sort of the answer to your question. I, I don't think any of us are going to know. It's just going to happen, and we need to be able to watch it as it does. Bobby, this is a follow-up question. Um, there seems to be like a couple different price points in the market. I'll call it one is an online education, goes at one price, and an in-person goes at a second higher price. Uh, if if they, if we can't have an in-person experience, are they going to? Most colleges going to be forced to cut price to the online level, and if so, will that also provide? Uh, I'll call it permanent damage to the college monetary model. I'm not. I, I I actually floated that scenario, and so this is about suits, lawsuits. And I, well, it's about, I, I, I guess it's about lawsuits for the existing, but it's also about what's going to happen in the future here in the next couple no, of semesters. No, it's about the future, too. Yes, I, I agree to that. It's about the future. But the question is, what is it that the college is selling? Is it really selling its in-class experience, or is it selling its educational degree? I know that the lawyers are going to argue we're selling degrees. We're not selling particular experiences. I believe at the upper ends of the market, that argument will hold. That what you want is the Penn degree. Isn't it nice that a Penn degree comes with a Penn education? But the uh -huh. money is about the Penn degree. Lower down in the market, it's not. But that's where the market's in, unraveling anyway. I don't know. I don't think that helps as an answer, but that's what I've got. Okay. Uh, Chris, uh, my next question for you. Um, a lot of kids are considering gap years. Um, how is that going to, are, are you going to tolerate it? Uh, is that going to screw up your planning? 
Um, is that just a mistake by the kids who are just going to sit home and do nothing? Uh, how do you think about when or if kids should go to campus soon? Yeah, so so that's a really good question. And, you know, what we're doing is <clears throat> we're only mapping out, <clears throat> excuse me, three scenarios, not 40, uh, which would be impossible. And it, actually this week I'll be writing to students saying, look, here are the scenarios. What do you think you want to do if it came down to this one or that one? Um, so, you know, I, th I think there probably will be more students who want to take gap years or take a leave of absence. Actually, athletics ties into that. A lot of students who are athletes might want to take time off if they know that they can't play their sport and they want to be able to come back and, and, not, and, and be able to continue. So we're going to collect data on that. You know, in some ways for us, if we want to de-densify the campus, it's actually, it can be beneficial to have fewer students who want to come back in the fall. So I'm not too worried about that uh, because I think it would it would actually help us achieve our public health uh, goals. And you you heard Casey mention some things about college sports. Um, what were your thoughts on on that? Are we just going to have empty stadiums? Are they still going to play? How, oh, how I don't about? know. I don't know. We have we have, you know in the Ivy League we haven't made a decision yet. I, I think one one factor we one advantage we have is that for us sports is not a money maker. Not a money maker. So. It's more about uh, trying to provide a great experience for our students. Uh, you know, there's been some talk about trying to squeeze all fall sports into the spring. I'm actually very concerned about that. Students would have to be practicing at horrible times. Do we have enough trainers? Could we do it safely? Uh, so I think that's going to be really problematic. Um, and, you know, every league is going to decide their own thing. Every school is going to decide their own thing. But I don't think it's going to be a great year for college sports. And international students are going to be very challenged to get uh, into the United States and, and onto your campus. Um, and I think that's true across the board. Have you guys thought about what you're going to do for Are you thinking about maybe taking the education to the kids? Yeah. Um, so, so banding we're, together we're with planning, other private schools, for example? Yeah, we're, we're planning on having a fully online or, or remote, as uh, Bob said, they're really different things. but a combination of online and remote courses that students who can't get back to campus can take if they want, or if they want to wait and come in the fall, come in the summer. Uh, you know, Brown is very much about student choice, so I, I think we'll offer them the opportunity, uh, but then let them make their own decisions according to what's best for them. And the, a, lot, a number of universities have expanded their product offerings beyond just undergraduate education, just short-term courses, summer programs, um, you know, weekend programs. How, how, I, just, I don't know if Brown offers some of these programs at all, but how are you thinking about all those other? Yeah, the, I mean, we actually, we, we have a huge uh, summer program for high school students, which is part, you know, there's some online remote opportunities, but also a lot of it's on campus. And students yeah. take classes in the summer, so we canceled that out this year. Uh, although we're still doing the remote and online, but this is yet another area where uh, colleges and universities are losing a lot of funding, uh, is just because they can't do these other programs. Okay, Mark, are you, Mark Smolinski, are you still with us? Uh, yes, I am. Yes. Okay, I have a couple questions for you on some of your experiences of old. Um, you worked on that Google flu trend, for example. I'm wondering, yes. um, in, in that experience when you were doing, I'll call it big data disease, disease surveillance, um, 
can you explain what that is, and do you think that that sort of surveillance could be helpful in predicting uh, without the cause of some of these uh, tests that we're using to understand how the disease is spreading? Yeah, sure. Thanks for asking. So the way Google Flu Trends was built uh, was really because it was driven by the engineers. And so rather than telling us, telling them how to solve the problem we were trying to solve, which was, you know, can we find signals for influenza faster uh, than traditional systems, um, their idea was, okay, well, let's look at search queries and the idea was like, you know, you would think, okay, what are the list of things you would think people might be searching early on if they think they had flu? But no, their idea was, since influenza has a very distinct pattern in the United States, we have a flu season and no flu season, and you have that sort of sine wave curve, they matched anything that was searched on Google to that curve and then added the term. So there was no predetermining what those could be. Uh, so in the end was the system that ended up being 45 search terms that generated a signal that was two weeks ahead of the U.S. CDC, but it was completely anonymous aggregated data, so there was no connection to people. Uh, so when I moved over to help Jeff Skoll start his foundation, we created Flu Near You with the idea that if we were a couple weeks faster by what people were searching the Internet, what could we learn directly from engaging people to tell us the same kind of information, but then have the opportunity to give them really valuable information like where are they offering vaccinations in your neighborhood uh, and so forth. Yeah. So now, you know, people are looking at both passive data uh, like a Google flu trans automated search and what's coming through any kind of form of electronic media and the world health organization recently uh, made available a tool called the EIOS, which stands for Epidemic Intelligence from Open Sources. And they literally had one of the first reports that came from Wuhan about the cluster of illnesses, but uh, they, their newsletter just came out. And it came in like at 4.30 in the morning. Um, so in all fairness, their first officer in the morning used the ProMed report uh, you know, which brought the same sorts of information. But the bottom line is these systems work, and they help us find outbreaks in parts of the world where we don't have very robust public health systems. But when you combine that to directly engaging communities, then you have an even better signal, and you have a chance to do immediate response. So it's a combination of both passive and active. And as we move even forward, when people start having wearables and we can get automated temperature reports, uh, you know, even in an anonymized fashion on a large enough scale could also help us find clusters of any kind of acute illness faster. You know, one of the things that we've talked about as a community is trying to make sure our hospitals don't get overrun and we should somehow uh, manage the disease and the spread so that the hospitals can be properly managed. Um, do you see this technology helping us do that? Or are you thinking more of it as a technology to prevent us getting sick at all? Okay, and so... And if you want to do the former, how would you do that? Yeah, so this is a true story of a phone call I had yesterday with an ER doctor from Northwestern University in Chicago. I still can't believe this is the case. He was calling me because he had been reading about stuff on our website and said, I'm an ER doc. We want to build a system so 
the moment we have a COVID patient in our ER, I can alert all the other ER docs in, you know, the Chicago area, and we could be getting the same information to them on a regular basis, not only to know when a case is detected, especially as we come through, you know, this next phase, but also to prepare about, like, distributing resources and so forth. And I said, are you telling me that emergency rooms in a major city like Chicago are not connected in any time of system that's reporting data, like if you had a case of measles or something else? He's like, no, I'm telling you that. And I'm also the epidemiologist for the hospital, so I can guarantee it doesn't exist. Well, I mean, you talk about our canaries in a coal mine. How can we not be connecting emergency rooms in something as simple as that? I told him right away, you could solve that tomorrow with a WhatsApp group. He's like, hmm, hadn't thought about that. So, yes, we are not applying technology to solve some of these problems in really, really simple ways. Okay. Uh, Andy, for you, um, you mentioned that the various testing and tracing uh, opportunities. I'm wondering what you think the role of the employer will be in the testing and tracing process. A number of employers have suggested that they want to use uh, testing and tracing to well determine which employees will be at work. Um, how, how do you see employees in the process? Yeah, I think Salesforce.com has already uh, done this, and I think uh, I think others have as well. And you're going to end up with um, uh, tracing being largely a public health function. But you know, this whole thing, if you step back, is really about how do you make people feel safe? How do you make people people feel safe? taking public transit, how do you make people feel safe getting on an airplane, how do you make them feel safe going to a restaurant, and how do you make them feel safe showing up to the office. Um, now, many office environments are designed to be relatively safe. Many of them are not, and particularly, you know, we know that meat processing plants and so forth have a really poor design from a public health standpoint. So if you have real-time testing, um, you're going to make people feel safe. You're going to make people feel comfortable. Even people uh, with low incomes and who live paycheck to paycheck, uh, particularly essential workers, have been pretty clear that they don't want to be put in situations where they're not safe. So, you know, we have, I think we are um, leaning on people awfully hard um, by putting them into these kind of environments. But if you can actually say, if you show up, we will make sure that everybody around you can't infect you. Um, to the best of our ability, we're not going to eliminate risk, but we're going to allow people uh, to get back on the things. I think large employers, airlines, um, other kind of areas where people gather are going to need to do that in order to have uh, to be able to get back to something close to where they were before. As a follow-up, um, there's an article in the New York Times earlier in the week. Um, I think it was about Ferrari uh, opening up their plants. Um, they did antibody tests. Uh, not the virus that they did the antibody test. They found only like 1% had antibodies. Um, 5% of the employees refused to take the test. Um, and then these weren't testing for the live virus. Um, and so I'm just wondering how you're thinking about um, people that say no, uh, people I won't participate in the testing, um, and whether or not you think that Antigen is the finding the antibodies is the right way, or finding the uh, the live virus is the key. Yeah, I mean, look, let's hope we're not in a situation where antibody testing becomes important because if it does, that means we've we've built up herd immunity the hard way, 
Uh, now, New York, I think people have all seen the information that probably 15 to 20 percent of New York has um, has uh, probably some immunity. And it's worth testing, at least on a population basis, to see whether that's true, how long that holds, whether it's still true six months from now. Um, and and it's, so it's, it's good from a public health standpoint. It, what it's not good for is from an individual standpoint, it doesn't help any individual know how to make decisions because the tests just aren't that reliable. They don't tell you enough, and there's a lot of false negatives. The rest of the country, uh, you know, we're at 2 3 4% um, uh, immunity, um, you know, probably at best, even if you've got, even if you count a large number of untested cases. And if that's the case, um, you know, there's not significant, uh, there's not significant benefit. And, you know, the cost of getting to higher immunity, when people talk about, let's move to the Swedish model, you know, we, we lost 60,000 people getting to that two to 3%. Um, you know, we'll, even if we do a better job, um, you know, that's just not a, that's just not a trade-off that I think Americans are willing to make. Now, in terms of whether or not people re- refusing tests, uh, refusing contact tracing. Look, we, you know, we live in a liberal democracy. We value our freedom or our quote-unquote freedom. We value, uh, you know, we're suspicious of government. We're suspicious of big tech companies. You know, these are our values. This is our culture. And our culture is, going to be, is meeting up with how you manage an infectious disease. And I don't think um, in the end um, that it's a neat fit, but I think in the end um, we'll come up with I think a reasonable set of answers uh, after a fair amount of debate. I expect that many people will say, no, I don't want to test or I don't want to contact trace. I don't want to tell you who I've been in contact with. And, you know, that's, that's going to be their right. Um, we're not going to do it like they did in China, which is force that out of people. However, if we put the proposition to people in the right way, which is to yeah. say, if you said, hey, Larry, uh, by the way, you're COVID-19 positive. We want to help you figure out who you've infected in the last couple of days if you've infected anybody and we have a systematic way of helping you, I think most people are going to say yes to that because I don't think most people want to get other people sick. I think that's fair. Um, at this point of the call, usually um, the call is turned hyper negative and we're very despondent and we're ready to just go jump out the window, but that has not been the case today. Uh, but needless to say, I want to continue with the pattern I've done in the past, which is ending on a note of optimism. So I'm going to ask each of the, uh, various speakers to 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 end with um, just something that you, you view as you, when you look outside the window you see actually see some buds of optimism and Andy I'm going to start with you what do you see optimistic that you haven't discussed Yeah I mean look there's a, there's a couple things that I think are are we should take are going to happen one is uh, this period is going to be over it's a terrible period of uncertainty it's a period of sadness uh, we will get through it and at the end of it we're going to ask ourselves two questions I believe to judge this. One is, how many people did we lose? I think a sub-question sub of that will be how many people um, uh, who are of color and vulnerable and uh, that we put in harm's way, like, like care providers, did we lose? Let's keep that number as small as possible. The second is, I think, an even simpler one, which is what did we do along the way to make things better and better for other people? Um, there, there have been amazing connections. Uh, we, you know, we started a hashtag, the best of us. Um, you know, we've launched a podcast called In the Bubble, which talks about life during this time. And there's a lot of people who uh, are focused this time on, you know, I, if I can help, I want to help people. And if I need help, I'm going to ask for help. And people, I think, are more, um, there's more shared sacrifice 
uh, and more willingness to provide care sacrifice than I've seen in my lifetime. Most people I know of have never left, lived through an age of sacrifice. And I think there's real meaning that can come from it. And I think we're all probably seeing it in some of the better moments. Great. Thank you. Mark? Yeah, thanks. I'll just share two things. One is, is you know, for someone who's been working on pandemic prevention for decades and having a hard time getting people to understand why they should care, I'm hoping that will be an easier conversation going forward. And I think the second thing is, you know, while it's been complicated to manage all the different sort of applications of technology that have come out of the woodwork to deal with this particular COVID, um, it really reinforces the idea that the time has come to make the public part of the solution and to do that in really uh, new and interesting ways. And I'm excited to see how that can change public health going forward. Uh, thank you very much. Thanks, Mark. Chris? Uh, thank you. So I, I would say two things. One is I, I, to go on this theme of bringing community together. I have just been amazed at how people in Brown and Rhode Island around the country have just stepped up, volunteered to help, uh, you know, a lot of philanthropy, a lot of, you know, making supplies, making meals. And it's really quite wonderful to see that. Uh, the, the other the other thing I like, and maybe this shows the fact that I'm not a scientist, but you know, when you think about it, we're, we're four months into this, and already there have been so many advances in, um, in, in just the testing treatment, uh, what, you know, it, and maybe it's slower than what we like, but we're really making progress. And so in four months, I, I think we're going to see a lot more. That's what I'm hopeful about. Thank you. Bob? Uh, this will surprise you, but I actually think the most optimistic thing out there is that people are talking. I have been part of, even though I'm remote, more interesting conversations over the last three months than maybe the previous three years. So I think that the crisis itself is making it clear to everybody we are interdependent, and that interdependence is what's going to get us forward in the end. You live in interesting times. Uh, Beth? Yeah, I'll just um a variation on what Mark said, which is um, that for those of us that look at globally catastrophic biological events, the event that we're going through right now is absolutely um, catastrophic and people are, are losing their lives, but it could be a lot worse. Uh, we know that it could and can and probably will be uh, someday um, a worse pathogen. And so what this is exposing for us is the gaps that we have to fill to get prepared for that. And it's sharpening the focus on what those gaps actually are. Obviously, living through it the hard way is, is the, the toughest way to do that. But we are learning, I'm learning so much about where the cracks are in our architecture and we are plugging them as quickly as we can. So I'm hopeful that we'll keep um, these specific lessons uh, not really far back in the rearview mirror, but keep them present and close at hand so that we can fill these gaps more quickly in the future. Great, Beth. Thank you. Lyle? Uh, well, similar to what I, I'd said, you know, this has accelerated you know, innovations like telehealth. A lot of my colleagues who have been in the innovation field for a long time have found that all of a sudden the things that they've been pressing for have been gained approved because they improve efficiency and quality. Uh, it's hard to change the status quo. Unfortunately, we sometimes need big crises to do it. But in healthcare, it, it, the system was breaking anyway. Um, telehealth is one of the things that will save the system uh, in a variety of ways. So uh, we're 
we've seen a major, major acceleration that will continue. Um, uh, I'll also add a little to what other folks said. There's a great New England Journal of Medicine editorial um, this past week that talked about um, that we've also sort of um, shown that when doctors are given more autonomy uh, and um, that they are able to be connected together in a variety of ways, they can do amazing things. And this issue about burnout has never been about working hard. Uh, doctors are amazing individuals. Um, healthcare providers of all sorts are. Um, and no one feels burned out from the, the, the idea of, um, uh, of working too hard per se, although they're physically they're getting burned out. Uh, but the emotional um, charge that this has given healthcare providers, I think, is very important and reminds us um, really that they should be much more involved and in charge of, of healthcare systems. Thanks, Ralph. Doug, you're up. Well, first and foremost, I'm optimistic because the first weekend in May, the sun came out and the governor here in New Jersey finally said we could go play golf. So life just feels a lot better from, from the get-go. Um, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic in seeing that, you know, after so many years of the conversations in the healthcare system being about reduction of cost, reduction of cost, um, you know, people are starting to look and, and question what else we might need in our healthcare system. And this has exposed some weaknesses that I think we can now address. And lastly, and maybe dovetailing um, on, on Lyle's comments, um, you know, I've been deeply disturbed about the devaluing of the profession of physician and also other medical workers and are our best and brightest wanting to still go into medicine um, when other industries seem so much more attractive. Um, I am very, very optimistic that people are recognizing the great work that are done by uh, medical professionals across the board and really valuing them and whether it's seven o'clock cheering or just in their general lives recognizing that these folks are there when we need them and we should be increasing our thought as a society on their value to what they produce and do for us. And I see that happening in a way that I have never really seen before in my career. So I'm very optimistic about that. Thank you. Casey? Well, I, uh, I rely on all the, the, the brilliant minds you, you expose us all to every week, Larry, and, the, uh, and the, the incredible work that everyone is doing. And I think forward 15 months from today, to the opening ceremonies in Tokyo, Japan, 209 countries marching in, uh, the biggest event on earth, uh, a Team USA with a 1,000 athletes, and I can't think of an event to celebrate overcoming maybe the greatest challenge of our generation and bringing the world together at the world's biggest event in a place like Tokyo um, to create a new sense of optimism, a new sense of patriotism in this country. Uh, and energy and excitement. So my optimism is fast-forwarding 15 months to uh, opening ceremonies. Great. I know. Yeah, I think two things come to mind to me. One is that I've been talking about the challenges, but there's also really extremely touching moments in which these communal uh, or religious groups, Orthodox or otherwise, really are taking care that um, their members are not isolated in these times. And I think the strength of these communal um, religions, when they can keep social isolating or at least physical distancing, but actually keep each other socially together, uh, has been really beautiful to see. 
And then the other, which dovetails on what I've said, is that I think there's a chance that there's going to be a new balance of the relationship between medical and religious expertise that I think would be very valuable. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, David? Well, I'm looking at these issues from the perspective of the economy as a whole. And what I've really been encouraged by is the extent to which the Federal Reserve and the Treasury and even Congress have taken an attitude once once they realized it really was a crisis of doing whatever it takes, uh, no matter how novel the, the intervention is, just to try whatever it takes to, to minimize the pain, both for the larger economy and for individual lives. And so I, I have found that very encouraging. My hope is that uh, economically we'll use this moment as an opportunity to, to plan for future crises so that the next crisis like this that hits us will be a little bit more ready for it. Great. Okay. I think that ends it for today. I want to thank my speakers and all the audience members for their participation, and I look forward to seeing you all next week. Thank you so much. You can disconnect now. Bye-bye.